Thank you, Brother Terry. <clears throat> thank you, choir. Thank our praise team. Thank all of you for taking part in worship. And if you brought your Bibles this morning, turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to be sharing a message entitled just the Passover. The Passover. Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 14. So if you would, if you would stand at this time out of reverence and respect to God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Exodus, first book in the Bible, our second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses where they eat it. And then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall, uh, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all gods of Egypt. I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall, you be, shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as the feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to be here to worship you and now to open your word. Speak to our hearts as we think of the Passover, as we think of the crucifixion. Father, as we see today you as the Passover lamb. Father, we pray now that you would speak to our hearts, be with me as I share, give me the right spirit to, to share your word. And Father, I pray that in the end that people will obey your Holy Spirit and make the decisions that they know you would need them to make. Thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. The Passover. 
This morning we recognize through songs and through passage of Scripture, we've recognized uh, Palm Sunday, the beginning of the last week in the life of Jesus prior to his crucifixion. Next Sunday we're going to meet together and celebrate the glorious bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before there's a resurrection, there must be a cross. Now, all the Gospels give details. All the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels give the details about the crucifixion, about the cross, about Jesus and his crucifixion. However, there are other portraits. There are other portraits of the cross through Scripture. One is found in Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 14. The Passover is a portrait of the cross. So this morning I want us to look at the cross through the portrait of the Passover. Now up until this point in Exodus chapter 12, God had sent Moses to command Pharaoh to let his people go. The Israelites were being held captive there as slaves in Egypt. And so Moses was to lead them out of Egypt. To do that, they had to be set free. And so Moses went to Pharaoh on behalf of God and said, God wants his people to to leave and be able to worship him freely in a place that he's going to give them. But Pharaoh refused. Therefore, God sent a series of plagues on Egypt to encourage Pharaoh to release God's people who he held in slavery. Now, the plagues were not haphazard. It wasn't that God tried something that didn't work, so he thought, well, what can I do now? And he tries something else. But God focused each plague upon the idolatry of Egypt and Satan. There was a rhyming reason to the plagues. Now, I don't have time to go into the different plagues and what the plagues were. I'll just mention the plagues briefly. But just remember, the plagues were a battle of the one true God, capital G God, and a battle between the little g gods, the gods of Egypt. So you have the battle of the one true God and the little g gods of, of uh, Egypt. So Pharaoh refused his request to let the people go, and so God began to send plagues upon Egypt. He turned first the water of the Nile into blood, a plague. He turned uh, the land, uh, he he sent the plague of frogs, frogs everywhere. Now they worshipped a sacred frog. And they they had a big statue of this frog, and they would worship this frog. And all of a sudden, they'd open doors, and there were frogs. They'd open cabinets, they'd look under, they'd pull their sheets back, and there were frogs. Everywhere you looked, there were frogs, frogs, and frogs. And so, no doubt, it didn't take long for them to start killing the frog that they worshipped. He sent the plague of lice. The Bible says that the dust of Egypt turned into lice. He sent the plague of flies, beetles. He sent a disease on cattle. They worshiped cattle. They worshiped the black cow as a god. And now they have a sick cow to worship. 
is a battle with the God, true God and the little G gods. He sent balls on all the people, and that was a hardship for the priests because they had to, they led the religious activities of Egypt, and so they had to be pure and spotless without any type of uh, spot or stain upon their, upon their skin, and all of a sudden they all have, they all have these balls, and so he attacked the religion of Egypt. And then he sent the plague of hell, and he sent hailstones, and he sent the plague of locusts, and he sent the plague of darkness. They worshiped the sun god Ray, the sun god, worshiped the sun, sun god Ray, and all of a sudden it's dark all over the land for a period of time. And so God, capital G God, took care of the little G God, Ray. So he was teaching the Egyptians who he was. God was teaching the Egyptians who he was. He was convincing Pharaoh that he was God, the one true God. But he was also bringing his own people to the place where they would be willing to acknowledge him as their God. But now he sends his last and final plague, and that was the death of the firstborn. But however, before this plague, he gives the Israelites kindly pre-plague instructions, how they could survive this terrible plague of the death of the firstborn. Because you see, this plague required something the other plagues didn't require. This plague of salvation required the shedding of blood. And so first of all, if you're taking notes in your outline, you have the stirring of the will of the people, the stirring of the will. Now, there was a lamb needed. If you'll look, look at verse tw- chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goat. So they needed a lamb. So God's patience has run out, and death to the firstborn was about to fall. Now, notice death would come to all. Read that passage again. It would come to all unless they were protected by the blood of the Lamb. So secondly, you had the first you had the staring of the blood, but under that first you have the Lamb selected. How the Lamb was selected, very important. Look at verse 5, I just read it. He says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, the first year. You take it from the sheep or from the goats. You keep it to the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And so a rich man was not to bring a full-grown bull. He should bring a lamb. The poor man could not bring just a bird to sacrifice. It had to be a lamb. The, the sacrifice had to come from the flock. Had to be a lamb. No doubt there'd be all types of objections to this. We've got to carry a lamb. got to bring a lamb. I don't have a lamb. I'll have to give a lamb. And so when they heard that they'd have to have a lamb, you no doubt heard all these objections, all these different arguments that were raised. One person may say, might say something like this. You know, I'm related to Moses and I don't need a lamb. I'm kinfolk to the leader. I don't need a lamb. That should be good enough for me just to be related to Moses. Another person may argue, well, I'm a decent person. I'm a moral person. I'm good to my family. I work hard for my family. I'm good to my spouse. I'm a good parent. That should be sufficient for me. I don't need a lamb. Or someone else might say, you know, I'm a priest. I've been offering sacrifices all my life. Surely to goodness, 
I don't need a lamb. I can stand on, on that ground for my salvation. And maybe the skeptic would say, well, how could blood protect anyone from a plague? Or how could blood protect anyone from a death angel? How could that happen? Or what kind of God would demand millions of lambs to be sacrificed all at one time? What kind of God is that? But listen, it all comes down to this. Pay attention. It all comes down. We can't select our personal method in how we're going to be saved. We can't select our personal thought. And if I do this or if I do this, I think I'll be all right with God. We better make sure that we go by God's method in regards to salvation. And God says this, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. That's his method. And so this lamb was needed, the lamb was selected, but secondly, the lamb was secured. Look at verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So it's secured. No doubt, each morning, this father would go out and he'd have his lamb tethered or tied out, out a piece from the house, and he would go out and he'd check on that lamb. He'd go where the lamb was tied. And he'd examine the lamb to make sure that it was free from, from any type of blemish, anything that would hinder that from being a perfect sacrifice. Now, you've got to remember this. Keep this in mind. The lamb was a type of Christ. It's a picture of Christ, the lamb of God. Now, in the last week of our Lord's life, he would go from Bethany at night and he'd return to Jerusalem in the morning. He'd go to Bethany and then back in the next morning he'd go back into Jerusalem. From the 10th day to the 14th day, they watched the lamb. Jesus' enemies watched him. They wanted to watch him. They made sure that there was, they made sure, hoping they could catch something that would be in his life that disqualified him from being the Lamb of God, the King of Kings. And so the man, Little boy, Terry sang about a few minutes ago, no doubt he kept watch over that lamb to make sure it was satisfactory. And during the last week before he would be put to death, he wanted to make sure that lamb was satisfactory. And so the Lord is the only sinless man to ever live on the earth since the fall of Adam. And we know that for sure. We have a testimony from Father God in Matthew 3.17. When God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We have a testimony that he's perfect from Pilate. In Luke 23, 4, he said, I find no fault in this man. We have a testimony from his father, Jesus' father, from his foes, Pilate, and from his friends. Peter, for instance, in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he said this man, he did no sin. And so you have the lamb selected, you have the lamb secured, and then you have the lamb slain. Look, if you will, at verse 6. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it into, uh, on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house and where they eat it. So you have the lamb slain. 
the living lamb slain. A very lovely lamb slain. Going back to the Passover, the little family there had their lamb. It was a lovely lamb. No doubt it was a beautiful little lamb. But it couldn't save. The lamb couldn't save. The living lamb, Jesus Christ, could not save while he was alive. He was going to have to die. And so the Passover preparation, all the things that we're told about the Passover, they were predetermined by God himself. It was a deliberate act of God. The Passover was a deliberate act of God. God would accept no excuses, no variations, no substitutes, no arguing. This was going to be the Passover. The decree was real simple. Either the angel saw the blood and, and saw the blood, or the angel did not see the blood, and the household, the firstborn died. It had to be one or the other. The angel saw the blood, or... Or he slayed the household's firstborn. One or the other. So the point is this. We're not saved by the examples of Christ. We're not saved by the life of Christ. We're saved by the death of Christ and by the blood of Christ. His life is important. His teachings are important. But when it comes to salvation, our faith is in Christ's death and his blood. Hebrews 9, verse 22, pretty well points this out, if you will. Uh, just mark that scripture down and look at the screen for sake of time. He says in Hebrews 9, 22, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding the blood, there's no remission. If you would, uh, go all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Salvation is not in the life of Christ, not in the ministry of Christ, but salvation is found in the death of Christ, in the blood of Christ. We need to focus on that. So that night, that first Passover, thousands of lambs, imagine that, thousands of lambs were uh, slain, and uh, God did not seal one of them. He didn't seal one of them, but he saw it. He saw Christ, the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the B part of that verse says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So you have a stirring will. You have a, you have a uh, startling mind. Can you imagine how startled people were to know that thousands of lambs were slain? It, it seems so unreasonable. Why all this seemingly sinless killings? I mean, it startled the mind. The skeptic one day made a, made a, a, asked a question of a Christian. Skeptic says, how can blood cleanse from sin? And the Christian says, well, ask the skeptic a question. How does water quench thirst? And the skeptic replied to the Christian. He said, I don't know how water quenches thirst, but all I know, it does. And the Christian replied to the skeptic. He said, I don't know how blood cleanses sin, but all I know, 
it does. So the point is, God doesn't require us to understand His plan of salvation. He asks us to trust Him. He asks us to obey Him. And God's way made no sense to the ungodly. His ways always startled the mind of the ungodly. Second Corinthians chapter 4, jot this down. Second Corinthians chapter 4, and I believe it's uh, verses 3 and 4. But even, our gospel, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who did not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. People are blind. The lost are blind. Did you know there are three types of blindness? There's a natural blindness, the blindness to spiritual things as a result to the fall. That's a natural blindness. All of us who are now believers once were blind to the things of God. So there's this natural blindness to the spiritual things as a result of the fall. And then there's this willful blindness. Willful blindness is the blindness of those who, by their own volition, they choose not to believe the divine truth of God's Word. Even when it's presented to them. The Word of God's presented to them, and they have this willful blindness out of their own choosing. They choose not to believe what God's Word says. They kind of poke holes in it, and, and uh, poke holes here, and poke holes there, and then they'll say this, I can't believe that. That's willful blindness. But the point is, in willful blindness, they just won't believe it. Not that they could believe it or can't believe it. They won't believe it. And then you have judicial blindness. This is interesting. Judicial blindness, a blindness that overtakes those who set themselves in defiant rebellion against God. Let me say that again. Judicial blindness, a blindness that overtakes those who set themselves in defiant rebellion against God. And I was looking for an example for that, and there's one found in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, and you have, uh, you have Lot and Sodom, and you have the, uh, the Sodomites. They're pounding at his door, and he has two visitors from heaven there, two angels inside the house. You kind of got the picture. And so listen, if you will, at verse 9. Or let's look at, uh, well, verse 9 says, And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came to stay here, speaking of Lot. And he keeps acting as a judge, and now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down his door. And Lot had offered them his daughters, but yet they wanted the vistas that Lot had that came from God. But the men reached out their hands, and they pulled Lot into the house with them, and they shut the door. Verse 11 says, And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So here's the point. There comes a time when God blinds and hardens the human heart. And then those who say they can't believe are confined in their own belief 
and they find themselves locked up in their lost condition, headed for certain judgment. That's what happened to these men that came to Lot's house. So here's the truth. Here's the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Salvation is full and free through the blood of Calvary's Lamb. And that's the greatest truth that you'll find in the universe. Salvation's free through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so you have the staring of the will. You have the striking of the heart. The, the startling of the mind, and then third, the striking of the heart. We have that, the striking of the heart on their outline. The striking of the heart, number three. Notice on striking of the heart, keep in mind, God demanded a lamb. Not a full-grown lamb, not, a, not a, a, a lamb that had curled horns. He didn't demand an old sheep with just tough flesh and set in its ways. He wanted a lamb. He wanted soft, gentle, loving, trusting lamb. Man would go get a lamb. And no doubt the children took up with the lamb. You can imagine that. They would around my house. They would around your house. They had this little soft-to-the-touch lamb, white, no spot, no blemish, newborn lamb. They would feed it, no doubt. They'd bring fresh a fresh grass to it. They'd name it. They'd inspect the bed, make sure the bed was what it should be, soft for the lamb. They would hug it before going inside. That was the lamb that was slain. Now can you imagine every, how everyone felt at that household when they heard that their lovable lamb must die in order that the oldest son could live? They were going to have to slay the lamb. And then one day, father came home, father goes in, gets a butcher knife, no doubt, and he takes the butcher knife, they see him go out to where the lamb's tethered, headed to that pen, and soon the dreadful deed was over with, and they saw the father coming back. The process was so personal, so emotional, Striking at the heart. And the same thing happened at Calvary. There is Jesus hung on the cross. Christ's mother watched from the edge of the crowd. John the Baptist, his eyes was just full of tears. In heaven, God the Father, he experienced all the anguish and the pain and the broken heart. God had called for a lamb, and there was the lamb, the lamb of God God's Lamb, taking away the sin of the world. 1 John 1, 29 says it this way, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 36, And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. No one in that family no one in that family, their heart, there's not a person in that family whose heart wasn't stirred. But once that family's pet was slaughtered, fresh blood from the veins of that little lamb was carried and carefully placed upon the lintel and on the doorpost of the house. And the basin, the blood that was left over, was set in front of the door. But now, after that was accomplished, the lamb had to be eaten. 
Imagine that. Kill the pet lamb. Now the lamb has to be eaten. Here's the point. They had to feed on the lamb to get their strength for the journey. That's why it had to be eaten. The point is salvation, my friend, listen, is only the beginning. We have to feed on Christ if we're going to have the strength to follow him. So they roasted the lamb. John Phillips said this in his commentary. He said, likely the lamb was impaled on two pieces of wood. One piece ran through the lamb from the front to the back to hold it in place on the cooking iron. The other piece of wood pierced the lamb from side to side. This allowed the body of the lamb to be turned in the flame. Thus the lamb was actually impaled upon a cross of wood. Imagine that. And then it could be consumed. It could be consumed after it was garnished with bitter herbs. The lamb was eaten with unleavened bread. And the whole process was to strike at the heart of the individual. It's, you know, it brought home to every Hebrew household the cost of salvation. Every home throughout the land that night, there would be a dead lamb or a dead son. They realized that sin and death were dreadful realities. Sin called for a radical cure, and they experienced that. We learn another lesson about Calvary as the Lord Jesus, the Passover lamb, gave his life for us on the cross. And now he gives his life to us to sustain us on a pilgrimage here on earth until we get to heaven. So you have the, the staring of the will, startling of the mind, the striking of the heart, and real quick and I close, the stabbing of the conscience. Why did the lamb have to die? Because of sin. And once the judgment angel was abroad, going throughout the area, death was to occur. And we can imagine that dark, dreadful messenger. He comes to a house, and when he gets to the first house, maybe an agnostic lives in that house. And there's a note pinned to the door that said this, or says this. Just imagine this, I was trying to. I don't believe a word of it. I'm a good man and I stand on my merit. Then the angel goes in. Pulls a sword. You hear a choke coming from a cot over in the corner. And that firstborn son was dead. The angel, deaf angel goes and inspects another house. Maybe a liberal person lives there. Had no use whatsoever for Moses or what Moses said or about Moses' guide. And he has a note pinned to his door, and he says, Thank God I'm not like other men. I'm a good man, and I'm going to stand on my merit. And all of a sudden, the angel goes in, draws a sword. You hear a choke from the cot, and then you have the son, the first son of that family is dead. And the angel goes to the next house, and that house has blood displayed right where it was required, right on the lintel, right on the doorpost, the bow in the middle. And the deaf angel just passed over that house and said, it's, it's well, but the point is this. Sin has been judged and counseled at that home where they were behind the blood. 
Those behind the blood were saved. And so the Lamb spoke to the conscience, and it gave a peace to that family. Just like today, all around the world, the blood still speaks today. It's not about the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. It's all well and good and great. But it's about his death, and it's about his blood. I'm going to close with this poem. This poem is written by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts, you're familiar, no doubt, 1674 to 1748. Listen to what he penned. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, took all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. We now look back to see the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree, for all our guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse removed, we bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing redeeming love. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity we have to come together today as we have celebrated Palm Sunday, recognizing the fact that you came into Jerusalem the week prior to the crucifixion. But we see a new portrait of the crucifixion in the Passover. And so thank you, Lord, for the picture that we've witnessed through the Passover as it relates directly to the cross. The little lamb at the Passover, and we quickly go to Golgotha, and we see the Lamb of God stretched out, dying on the cross for our sins. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's your method of salvation. Help us today to realize, to put our faith in the, the blood of Jesus, in the gospel that Christ came, that he died on that cross for our sins. He shed his blood for our sins. He was our substitute on that cross. He was buried, but on the third day he arose from the dead, having been victorious over sin, over the grave, over death, and lives triumphantly today. I pray for every person here today, whatever they may be trying to to rationalize and make their way to heaven in a humanly impossible way, that they might see that the path has been made already by the blood of Jesus, that they would come today trusting Jesus and the blood that was shed for them and for me. Speak to our hearts as we end this service through this invitation, and we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.